Our main text tonight is going to be in Revelation 21, and beginning of verse 9. So if you want to turn there and hold your place, I'll be there momentarily. Uh, we're looking tonight at the New Jerusalem. This is a passage of Scripture that I preached on several years ago uh, in the Revelation series. And uh, I'm going to look at it again tonight and thank the Lord for the hope that we have of that heavenly city. Uh, we're reminded of just how significant heaven is and the fact that it's mentioned more than 500 times in the Bible. That's a lot of mentions for one subject. And just as heaven is prominent in the Bible, it ought to be prominent in our hearts and in our minds. I think there are some limitations that we can never fully envision all that God has for us. Part of that holy anticipation is the part of worship where we're thinking about what the Lord is preparing for us and what Jesus promised that we would have when we get to be in God's presence. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20 and 21 says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly wait for a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. I think it strengthens our spiritual lives when we focus on where we're going. Our life on this earth is temporary at best. Life is described in the scripture as a vapor. And we all know that we're on a journey toward that heavenly city. And we know that our time is limited, but we want to make the most of it in the here and now while we anticipate what the Lord has in store for us in the future. By way of review, we have covered in this series eternity past and the heavens, the concept of heaven in the Old Testament, the body and soul, what happens to believers at death, characteristics of the present heaven, or what we might refer to as the intermediate heaven, the return and resurrection and judgment. Then we looked at that millennial reign of Jesus, and then the last study was on the new heavens and the new earth from a broader perspective, and then narrowing it down tonight to look at the new Jerusalem and I think next week I'm going to come back and talk a little bit about the new earth and how I think that's going to fit in with the new Jerusalem, but I haven't uh, finalized exactly where I'm going to go with that just yet. But in the uh, segment on the new heavens and the new earth, we looked at how the current heavens and earth are under a curse because of sin. Everything in God's creation is impacted by that. The new heavens and the new earth are anticipated in prophecy. We know that it's going to be magnificent. And the reason that God has told us these things, number one, is to give us the vision of what's coming in the future. But then secondly, in order to prepare us to be a holy, blameless people who are at peace with God in this life. And in the new heavens and the new earth and the consummation of all things, God is essentially going to remake the heavens and the earth. And we might think of it, and this would be an oversimplification, but we might think about it uh, sort of as a merging uh, of heaven and earth in a sense. And then our eternal dwelling place being that home that we have with God forever. 
So heaven in its broadest sense will encompass the entirety of the new heavens and the new earth. It will be the whole of what God recreates, but the new Jerusalem will be the centerpiece of it all. It will be the capital city, the focal point of the new heavens and the new earth. Now in the first eight verses of Revelation 21, the question is essentially answered about what eternity with God is going to be like. The scripture says that God will dwell with his people forever. So the presence of God is going to be the greatest treasure. That's the best thing that we could talk about when we talk about heaven, is being present with God. We know that all things will be made new. Death will be no more. And along with the, uh, the removal of death, God will wipe away every tear and grief and crying and pain. All of that will be no more. The water of life will flow freely, and the water represents eternal life. And every person who believes in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord will spend eternity in heaven with God. So now let's focus our attention on the subject that's before us this evening in the New Jerusalem. Now I'm going to begin reading in Revelation 21 and verse 9. Then one of the seven angels who had held the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came and spoke with me, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. He then carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, arrayed with God's glory. Her radiance was like a precious stone or a precious jewel, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. The city had a massive high wall with 12 gates. Twelve angels were at the gates. The names of the 12 tribes of Israel's sons were inscribed on the gates. There were three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. The city wall had 12 foundations, and the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb were on the foundations. The one who spoke with me had a golden measuring rod to measure the city, its gates, and its wall. The city is laid out in a square. Its length and width are the same. He measured the city with the rod at 12,000 stadia. Its length, width, and height are equal. Then he measured its wall, 144 cubits, according to human measurement, which the angel used. The building material of its wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold, clear as glass. The foundations of the city wall were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first foundation is jasper, the second, sapphire, the third, chalcedony, the fourth, emerald, the fifth, sardonyx, the sixth, carnelian, the seventh, chrysolite, the eighth, beryl, the ninth, topaz, the tenth, chrysoprase, and the eleventh, jacinth, the twelfth, amethyst. The twelve gates are twelve pearls. Watch this, each individual gate 
was made of a single pearl. The main street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. Now verse 22. I did not see a temple in it because the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it because the glory of God illuminates it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never close by day because it will never be night there. They will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those written in the Lamb's book of life. Now chapter 22 and verse 1. Then he showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the city's main street. The tree of life was on each side of the river, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations, and there will be no longer any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. People will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun because the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. The New Jerusalem. Now the Bible mentions the New Jerusalem specifically only two times. Once toward the beginning of the book of Revelation and then once here toward the end of the book Revelation. The concept uh, of it is more strongly represented, though. Of course, the ancient city of Jerusalem being the great place of significance in the relationship that God had with his people and the covenant that God had with them. In the Old Testament, Jerusalem was the place where God, uh, God's rule over his people and his presence among them was focused and centered. Uh, This key aspect of Jerusalem carries over into the New Jerusalem as well and no doubt figures significantly in the continuing use of the name even in the eternal state. Hebrews chapter 12 also speaks of the heavenly Jerusalem and Galatians 4 mentions the Jerusalem above. These are the primary mentions of what we would refer to here as the New Jerusalem. Now, a thousand years have passed in the progression of Revelation since the angel in verse 9 was spoken of. At that point, he was acting as an agent of judgment. Now, he has the opportunity to put on display the bride, the wife of the Lamb. This is a reference, of course, to the church, redeemed by the blood of Christ. The Apostle John is carried away in the Spirit to a great and a high mountain. And from that great and high mountain, he is shown the holy city, Jerusalem, that is said to be coming down out of heaven. Now, I believe that this is the place, the heavenly city, that Jesus promised in John chapter 14. So I think you can overlay 
Jesus' words in John chapter 14 with the explanation of it in Revelation 21. Now, it's interesting that Scripture describes heaven as both a country and a city. Fifteen times in Revelation 21 and 22, the place that God and his people will live forever is called a city, meaning that it is, I believe, a literal, actual location, a city with buildings and residences and so on, but yet at the same time, it's also referred to as a country. And I think we're going to look at that a little bit more in the new earth and how these two come together. But both of the images, both of the metaphors, both of the literal references even, if you want to say it that way, um, are pointing towards something that's an actual place. So in the time that we have together, let's consider four characteristics of the new Jerusalem that we find here in the Scripture. Characteristic number one is that the new Jerusalem will radiate with beauty. The new Jerusalem will radiate with beauty. The city in John's vision appears like a massive, precious jewel. Her radiance, her brilliance are referred to in verse 11. Something that is radiant or something that is brilliant has light Uh, emanating from it. The city is described specifically as a jasper stone, as clear as crystal. Now, modern jasper is opaque and not clear. It's found in various colors. John is apparently referring to the beauty of the stone, maybe more than the particular characteristics, or maybe it's something that's just entirely new that we don't have a good way to describe in the current words that we have. But the word here refers to a crystal clear and beautifully cut diamond, a stone that was not yet known as a jewel in the first century. Heaven is essentially described as a flawless diamond. Now, you know how valuable a high-quality diamond is one that refracts the light correctly, one that has very few impurities. The bigger it is, the more valuable it is, and all the seas and all that go along with it. If you've ever bought one, you know how valuable they are. But here is something that reflects the glory of God because only God could create something that radiates with that kind of beauty. The city is going to have a massive wall. The wall will be anchored by 12 foundation stones, and on them, the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb will be present. The wall, if we go by the measurement here and and extrapolate what that would mean, would be somewhere around 216 feet thick. So imagine in your mind's eye, a wall going around the entire city, approximately 216 feet thick. The wall is adorned with every kind of jewel. Jasper, sapphire, chalcedony, emerald, sardonyx, carnelian, chrysolite, beryl, topaz, and so on. 
And around this wall, there will be 12 gates, and they're said to be three in each direction, and each made, with another phenomenal reference here, of a single pearl. Hard to even imagine. The main street of the city is pure gold, a unique reference to what that gold even looks like. An angel uses a gold measuring rod, and he says if the angel were to use a human measurement, which he did, and we'll get the commentary there, then this is what it would be. And that gold measuring rod is about 10 feet in length, and it's measuring the dimensions of the city. The city is 12,000 stadia in length and width. That would be approximately 1,400 miles around on each side, a perfect cube. That is a massive space, particularly if that space is utilized in a multi-level kind of a way, which presumably it will be. Randy Alcorn said, it is true that the Holy of Holies in the Temple of Solomon was also a perfect cube, 20 cubits in each direction, which led one to say that the holy city is the holy of holies of the future. The ground level of that city will be nearly 2 million square miles. And if the city is made up of different levels, it could potentially have as many as 600,000 stories. So in theory, at least, billions of people could inhabit the New Jerusalem alone, not to mention the remainder of the new earth. So our Heavenly Father is so wealthy that he's building a city that's as pure as gold, like clean, transparent glass, with room for billions of people. It'll radiate with beauty. The second characteristic is that the new Jerusalem will be arrayed with God's glory. It'll be arrayed with God's glory. Now, when we talk about the glory of God, we're talking about that which reflects the perfection of God, the greatness of God, and the worthiness of God. It all comes back to his holiness, which is the defining characteristic of who he is. And the glory of God is the beauty that emanates from his character. So it's God's holy character that emanates God's perfect glory. In the Old Testament, God commanded the tabernacle and then the temple to be constructed. They represented the presence of God, uh, the manifest presence of God among the people. They also represented access to God. And then Jesus Christ came, giving us that perfect access through his sacrifice. Those Old Testament symbols were just shadows of the eternal. In a New Testament sense, we are the temple of God because the Holy Spirit indwells us and we have access to God through the blood of Jesus. But there's something interesting that's mentioned here in this passage of scripture. There will be no temple in the New Jerusalem And the reason there will be no temple in the New Jerusalem is because God 
will be there. The scripture says that the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. So their glory will fill the new heaven and the new earth. And worship will be life. And life will be worship. And we will worship forever in the presence of God. Let me say that again. Worship will be life. And life will be worship. And we will worship forever in the presence of God. Further, the city will have no need for the sun or the moon because the glory of God and the glory of the Lamb will illuminate it. The glory that is overwhelming, but yet will be given the privilege of being in the presence of that glory. And in our glorified state, we'll be able to handle being in the presence of the glory of God eternally. The nations and the kings of the earth will walk by its light. Nations indicates ethnos, meaning every tribe and tongue. Meaning that people from every tribe and tongue, from the furthest corners of the earth, will have been brought into the New Jerusalem, and they will be in one united worship for the glory of God. This is in part the mission vision. So if you want to make a connection here, you can make the connection from Matthew chapter 28 to Revelation 5 and 7, now to the consummation of it in Revelation 21 and 22. What Jesus said, go and do, is envisioned in those opening chapters of Revelation as being around the throne of God. But when we get here, this is the consummation of it all. This is the fulfillment of it all, that there will be representatives there uh, from the ethnos. And the gates will never be closed. Now, in ancient cities that were walled off for protection, they would close the gates at night. They wanted to keep the invaders and the criminals from coming in under the cover of darkness. The gates of the New Jerusalem will not need to be closed because the city will be eternally secure. I've already made a reference to this, but this raises the question of who's coming and going and where are they going to and coming from. And this is in relation more to the new earth that I'm going to cover in the next session together. The third characteristic is that the New Jerusalem will be absolutely holy. The New Jerusalem will be an absolutely holy place. Now, nothing unclean will ever enter in to the New Jerusalem. Unclean refers to anything that is unholy or impure. Isaiah 52 and verse 1 says, Old Jerusalem... The holy city, the uncircumcised and the defiled will not enter you again. So no one who does what is detestable will enter in. No one who practices falsehood will enter in. No one who is unsaved will enter in. Two passages of scripture I would point you to. The first is 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 9 and 10. Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, 
adulterers or homosexuals, no thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. Now share one more and I'll make a comment on it. Galatians 5 in verse 19 to 21. Now the works of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. I'm warning you about these things, Paul writes, as I warned you before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now we tend to pick out the ones that we don't have an issue with to think that certainly those people would not enter the kingdom of God. But at the heart of it, this is describing lost people. This is describing people whose lives are a pattern of sin that are contrary to the holiness of God and specifically to the Word of God. And it is a stark warning to be certain that we're saved and that this is not the pattern of our lives and that we cannot just call things right that are wrong. We don't get to determine what is holy and unholy. God determines that and he defines it in his word. The eternal city will be a sacred space. And that's because God is holy and his people will be holy. The only reason any of us will be there will be by the grace of God. Because we have yielded ourselves to him, recognizing ourselves as sinners by the convicting power of the Holy Spirit, receiving Jesus Christ by faith, and knowing that we have the gift of eternal life. Those whose names are recorded in the Lamb's book of life are going to be free to enter the holy city because they possess eternal life through faith in Jesus. And the lamb who bought us with his blood will never blot our names from the book of life, and he will grant us the right to the tree of life and by his grace entrance into that city. It'll be a holy place because God is holy. The fourth characteristic. The new Jerusalem will be life-giving. Now, the river of the water of life is described here as clear as crystal. It will flow from the throne of God and of the Lamb, and it will flow down the middle of the city's main street. You remember in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 10, a river flowed from Eden to water the garden. So in Genesis, it flowed out of Eden, and in the new Jerusalem, it will flow out of the throne. The source of that river of life will be God himself. And we looked at a couple of weeks back when we were thinking about what God was describing about the new earth in particular and the new heavens and there being no more sea. Uh, and those of us who love the sea, uh, there's a good possibility because this river has to go somewhere that there could be massive lakes that are like the ocean. Uh, we don't know exactly what it's all going to be, but we're not going to be dissatisfied. I can 
guarantee you that. And it says here that the tree of life will be on each side of the river, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. The tree of life is the celestial counterpart to the tree of life in Eden in Genesis 2 and verse 9. The tree of life expresses symbolically the blessing and the provision that comes from God. The tree of life that's mentioned in Genesis 2 in Eden is mentioned four times in Revelation. The tree of life is presently in paradise in the intermediate heaven according to Revelation 2 and verse 7. The new Jerusalem will be brought down um, and the tree of life and all that will be placed as it mentions here. And just as the tree was apparently relocated from Eden to the present heaven, it will be relocated once again, and the leaves symbolize the healing of the nations. So when I think about God's recreation, particularly, of the new heavens and the new earth, I think about it in a sense of the restoration of Eden and what God intended. Remember, God intended perfect fellowship. There was a, an absence of sin. There was productivity, and, and there was the blessing of communing with God. And then sin fractured and, and really destroyed all of that. And what we're seeing here at the end of the book is the restoration of it all, from Eden to the New Jerusalem. So you can read the Scripture almost with that as a as a narrative overlay, and it'll give you a vision of what God is doing and what he's accomplished uh, through Jesus Christ. So those leaves of the tree will be for the healing of the nations. Now, Ezekiel 47 and verse 12 says, fruit trees of all kings will grow on both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail. Every month they will bear because the water from the sanctuary flows to them and their fruit will serve for food and their leaves for healing. There's not going to be any longer uh, any curse for sin. And it says that the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will worship him. And we're going to be in the very presence of God that we can experience the glory of God in his presence without being consumed. And that'll be the greatest blessing of it all. So I think when I read this passage, as we have, it almost is, it stretches my mental capacity beyond what it can go. And I think that's in part by God's design. Because if we could easily just describe it and understand everything that there is to understand about it, it would not be as magnificent as it's ultimately going to be when we actually see it. And when we actually see it and experience it for ourselves, then we'll realize even more so just how powerful and glorious God is. I want to share an excerpt with you from uh, Johnny Erickson Tata's book, How Far Away is Heaven? And I want to read part of this as I bring this toward a conclusion tonight. She said, as a child, I wondered where God lived in outer space and how long it would take to get there. 
Had I been old enough to read an astronomy textbook, I would have discovered a few statistics which would have blown me out of the water. Our solar system has a diameter of about 700 light minutes. That's 8 billion miles. But the galaxy in which our solar system is contained has a diameter of 100,000 light years. Not minutes, but years. Forget doing the math on that one, Johnny says. Our galaxy's humongous. But here's the kicker. Our little galaxy, which is 100,000 light years wide, is just one of billions of other galaxies out there in the cosmos. So how far away is heaven? What is on the other side? She says scientific journal may be stymied by that question, but not the Bible. The dwelling place of God exists in infinity. It is far, far away, and yet heaven is close, perhaps closer than we imagine. In some respects, we exist in the kingdom of heaven now. We've already come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem. We've come to myriad angels in joyful assembly. We've come to God, the judge of all men. And this fact makes the far and distant, near and oh so close. So how far away is heaven? My answer to that would be just a step of faith. That's it. It's just a step of faith. Because life is here and then it's gone. But faith in Christ is eternal. How far away is it? It's as near as God's Spirit is to us. And He indwells us. The Creator of it all is with us. And it's His Word that tells us what we should anticipate. And if our faith is in Him, then it ought to be a strong hope, a certainty. And as, I, as I've said throughout this entire study, I'm going to say it again. If you believe the Bible, you have nothing to fear if your faith is in Jesus Christ. You have nothing to fret about, wring your hands about. Christ has already won the victory over death. And in him, we have that same victory. That'd be my prayer for all of us, is that we would have that hope and that we would meditate on his word. And as we meditate on his word, it would take us to a place of worship.